Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons Podcast. I'm his son, Matthew, and we have been splitting up the sermons every other week at our house church that my wife and I host on our farm. If you're interested in joining us, check out wrightfarmhousechurch.com. Enjoy today's lesson. Jonah 2. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So last week when we were snowed out, or frozen out, or whatever we were, you uh, received a text or some kind of communication said, read Jonah, uh, and maybe Jonah chapter 2, I can't remember if it was the whole book or just the chapter. But uh, I know several of you did because I've heard from uh, several and that you've read it, and I want to encourage you to do it. As you just saw, we read chapter 2 just then, and it took out loud a minute and a half, maybe. I, I wasn't timing it. And the whole book is only four chapters long. 48 verses if I counted right, and uh, the longest one is chapter 1, which is one of the most exciting chapters, 17 verses of, of a lot of fun and fish and uh, oceans and waves and lots of good things. And so I want to encourage you to read it, and if it, it will take you five minutes probably to read. And if you think about it and put yourself in the story... It'll take you a little bit longer, maybe seven minutes or eight minutes. So we're not talking about investing a lot of time, and it doesn't take a lot of time to invest in God's Word to get benefit. So I want to encourage you to, to read, uh, read through, um, and even the, the very youngest, even a, some of you younger ones who can read, get out your Bibles or tell your parents, pull out the Bible and let me read Jonah together. Now, when we come to Old Testament passages, you know, how do we study these, these Old Testament passages? And I think that's a good question. It's a question that I asked myself as I began to study this particular book. And one thing that helped me years ago, uh, when we first moved to Fiji, it was so long ago, there was not internet during that time. And uh, there was, um, uh, we, we, I, we brought a few books, mainly our Bibles with us, but we didn't have a library of books. There was no library there in Fiji of, of commentaries and things like that. So 
we had basically our Bibles to study the Bible with. And that was quite refreshing, actually, to be forced to read the Scriptures and study the Scriptures and learn from the Scriptures and not rely on other helps, which are fine to use. I, I use other helps all the time. And it was during that time I discovered three keys that have helped me in studying the Old Testament. And I've shared this with you sometime back, several years back, so this might be a reminder for for some of you. But these three keys found in the book of Matthew have helped me as I've read through all the Old Testament. Each book, I keep these three um, scriptures in mind. And the first one is Matthew 5, 17. And there Jesus says, don't think I've come to destroy or abolish or to get rid of the law and the prophets. And that's the Old Testament. When you hear law and the prophets, he's just talking about the Old Testament. And he said, I didn't come to destroy them, but I came to fulfill them. I came to complete them. And so in one of my Bibles, I have written at the top of every Old Testament book this question. Where is Jesus in, and then the name of the book, where is Jesus in Jonah? The second question uh, comes from uh, Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. And in that passage, Jesus is quoting what we know as the golden rule, or some people know as a golden rule. He says, and everything do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Remember that? We call that the golden rule. We used to call it the golden rule. And so the question I ask there at the top of that Bible is, where is the golden rule in Jonah? And the third one is Matthew 22, and someone mentioned it today. I can't remember who it was, um, but, the, but Jesus was asked, which, uh, which is the greatest command? And he said, well, the first is this, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, the second is like it, and it's love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, on these two hang the law and the prophets, all the law and the prophets, all the whole Testament hang on these two. So I asked my quest, myself the question, where are the two greatest commands in Jonah? And I think if you've read it, and, and you'll think about this for a minute, you can quickly see that if Jonah had put himself in the place of the Ninevites, when God said, they're going to be destroyed, if, but I want you to go and preach to them, if you had placed, if he had placed himself in the Ninevites' shoes, and he had done to them as he would have want, wanted them to do to him, the golden rule, he would have gone right away. And we, we can also see love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. If he had really loved God the way he should, when God said go, he would have gone. And so we see it in a negative way. And if he really loved his neighbor as himself, and he considered, he, I guess he didn't consider the Ninevites his neighbor, probably, but they were, uh, he would have gone. He would have fulfilled the greatest command and the second greatest command. And so we can make a quick application to our, us uh, as we apply this. As we go throughout our day, are we applying the golden rule? Are we reaching out to the lost? If, so, if we know someone is without a relationship with Christ, are we applying the golden rule? Are we saying, well, if I were in their place, I would want someone to share with me. How would I want them to share with me? How would I want them to interact with me and then to do that? Or if we're motivated by God's love and our love for our neighbor, what should we do? And not only in the area of 
reaching out and sharing our faith and, and evangelizing or what, you know, all these different ways we could talk about it. But all the scriptures, are we applying the scriptures as a whole in this way? Are we reaching out? Are we, uh, are we acting the way we uh, treating other people as we want to be treated? Are we showing God's love or showing the love of uh, our neighbors in every way that we interact with people? And so the question I want to ask today, though, is where is Jesus in Jonah? And we're going to answer that later on. Now, Jonah, we're going to look at him, and I've called him the best man for the job and the worst man for the job. So I read through it about the second or third time. This, that thought came to my mind. Well, he was the worst man for the job, and he was the best man for the job. When people, when you read about Jonah, and maybe when you even talk about him, you hear people emphasizing the negative things about him, his flaws. Well, he disobeyed God. He showed a rebellious spirit. Uh, he lacked compassion. Did you notice that when he was asked to pray on two occasions in chapter 1, he didn't pray. <laughs> He's like, I don't want to pray. Or we don't know what he did, but it did, no record of him praying. He had a I'd rather die kind of attitude rather than obedience. In fact, he said, throw me overboard. He execute me is what he was saying. I'd rather die in the water than go on to, to, Ninevite, uh, to the Ninevites. He sulked. He desired that God show him mercy while he was showing harsh judgment to other people. And with these credentials, you would think, why choose him for the job? Uh, that's why I call him the worst man for the job. And yet, on the other hand, God chose him. God chose him. And so in that way, he's the best man for the job because God doesn't make a mistake. He had other choices. There were other people in Israel at the time, um, Isaiah was about that time period. I'm not sure exactly, but he was very close to that. Uh, I think Hosea was. Uh, look at David. He's going, yes, okay, there's, there was um, Micah, I think, was. There was about four or five other prophets and other people, I'm sure, that we don't know about that God could have chosen. But why didn't he choose them? Because Jonah was the best man for the job. He didn't hire Jonah only to have buyer's remorse later on. So why did he choose such a flawed man? And I think the answer is because it, he, Jonah's going to help us because we'll see ourselves in Jonah. No one had more success than Jonah. He had a great deal of success. In fact, every person he comes, comes in contact with that we read about in this book, he converts. They become believers in Yahweh, in Jehovah. He was a reluctant success. Isn't that interesting? A guy who didn't want to be successful, and he was totally successful. Uh, every person he met was converted to faith. And then as we see this prayer in chapter 2, we're going to see elements of both of these, his worst and his best. We're going to see both of these elements come out. And that's why I called this the prayer of a flawed man. Interestingly, as I've studied for this, this short prayer or this psalm has been analyzed and it's been structured in multiple ways. I could probably bring you six or seven different structures to this, uh, to this uh, 
prayer that different commentators have, have uh, taken. And writers, they'll, they'll take different tacks. So whether they're looking at Jonah in a negative light or more of a positive light, the attitude behind what he's saying, uh, they'll, they'll uh, structure this point or, or, or try to um, explain it in different ways. And so as I read through all these different, some, some of them are quite complicated uh, structures, I was thinking, but what, what is it saying to me? Okay, I know what this commentator is saying in this one, but what's it saying to me? And as I read through the, the prayer several times, I see myself there. I saw myself because there's so many times, and maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think so. The only one who, who really wants to serve God and really wants to do it right, and I just keep messing up. And I struggle with myself. And I struggle with my own flaws. And I struggle with my own failures. And sometimes I see where, the, where I should be and I'm not. And I just, I fight. It's like a constant struggle with myself. So as I looked at this prayer, I said, well, that's me there. I see myself in that prayer. And so we'll see this as we go through it. Here's my structure and it's, it's very simple. If you want something more complicated, I can give you something more complicated. But this is just my, my structure of the prayer. The first one in verse 2 is just kind of an overall statement. Jonah is saying, I called to God when I was in trouble and you responded. That's, that's the summary of, of, of verse 2. It's the beginning. It's the introduction. I called to God. I was in trouble. You responded. And then verse 3, he says, and then I was thrown into the ocean. All right. Then verse 4, I was completely out of all physical options. If you've ever been in the ocean, in a storm, you, you can know the feelings here. He's like, I, I, I had nothing. I, couldn't, I, I, was, I was done. And so I looked to God. And then verse 5, after he looked to God, I began to drown. <laughs> and then verse 6, I sank. I was sinking and I saw that my grave was going to be in the bottom of the ocean, in the sandbars of the ocean. And then the last part of verse 6 and verse 7, and God saved me at the last moment. Verse 8, basically saying God's the only answer. I'm, I'm, after going through all that, God is the only answer. Verse 9, thanksgiving and salvation. And so in a simple form, we, what we have here is a lot of themes going on, as we're going to touch on these themes uh, briefly. Uh, it's a sinking down and a rising up. It's going from lost to save. It starts with no hope. It ends with hope in God. It has covenant language embedded in it. And, and that, what I mean by that is when God made a covenant, made an agreement with, the, with his people, even today, his people today, he, he uses covenant language. And Matt used some covenant language when he was up here. He says, and we are to remember, and we're going to see that. That's one of the covenant words. We are to remember Jesus as we partake of this Lord's Supper. And so we're going to see covenant ang uh, uh, language. Imagery of new birth is there. It shows faith in his deliverance even before he was delivered. It showed faith in his deliverance. Uh, he shows thankfulness for being rescued from drowning. The belief that while he was inside this fish, it wasn't the end. Think about it. When you're inside a fish belly, that's where you get digested. 
And he didn't see that as the end at that point. So we see faith there. And here's something really interesting. Unless, you're, can, unless you see this reading between the lines, nowhere in his prayer is there, does he actually repent? Nowhere does he confess sin. Now you can kind of see it between the lines maybe, but there's not an outright, I was wrong, God, I sinned against you, forgive me. There was nothing like that at all. And so we're going to break it down into, into some themes here. It's a prayer. It's a psalm. And it's a call to prayer. It, it actually means habitual prayer. This was Jonah's habitual way of praying. And there's elements of it that was uh, habitual. It also means to judge oneself, which I find really interesting. Have you ever prayed to God and you've told God what an awful person you are? Have you done that? I've done that. You're, you're, I'm driving down the road and I just feel bad about something or something I've done or said. And I'm telling God what an awful person I'm, I am. And uh, that's exactly what this prayer means. You judge yourself. You look at yourself in light of God. Uh, the prayer, in this, this prayer, there's a sense of centering in on God. This is, God, this is Jonah at his best. Fifteen times that I counted, he refers to God either by name or by you, you know, the pronoun. Uh, but at the same time, he refers to himself. This is Jonah in his worst. Twenty-three times he refers to himself. He actually talks about himself more than he talks about God. And it's, this, it, it's like a psalm in many ways. I don't know if you noticed, but we sang, one of the songs we sang was from uh, Psalm 42. And if you go back and look at that, those words, or if you go to Psalm 42, you can see almost an exact quote in Jonah here. Uh, he's, you see a man, who, he's familiar with the Psalms. He knew the Psalms. And every verse you can see either is similar to a Psalm or is an exact quote of a Psalm. And beside that, there's Job, Exodus, and Deuteronomy that it's referred to. So a lesson that we can learn from this is we need to learn how to pray biblically. How do you pray? How do, you know, I ask the same question the, the disciples ask. Teach me how to pray. How do I pray? And here's a good hint. Pray, learn how to pray biblically. Learn how to pray in your struggles, in your thanksgiving, in your requests, in your petitions. Need to be anchored in a deep and growing knowledge of the Scripture. If you're not in the Scripture... You're not going to know really how to pray. So get into the scripture and, and Psalms is a really good place to go. Because in Psalms, there's, it's just prayer after prayer after prayer with, with, uh, with the, the psalmist struggling with his situation, himself, with others, with his sinful condition. And we can learn to pray by being in, in the scriptures. We see one of the themes him going from uh, birth to a new life. And there are several areas here. We're just going to briefly touch on them. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1 says, from inside the fish. And that word inside is the very same word for womb. I don't, I don't have time to go into how the fish is referred to in the, as a male at one point and a female at another point. And, 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 but the whole point there is he's trying to give you an imagery of He's inside this fish, and it's like being inside the womb. And then he says in verse 2, in my distress or in my travail, and that's the exact word for when a woman is giving birth. I've been with a woman who gave birth. She was in travail. <laughs> 
And I was smart enough to not ask her things like, uh, how long is this going to take? Uh, you, know, <laughs> you just, you, you, I, I was young enough to go, whoa, I don't want to do that. <laughs> In travail, and so he, that's this is the word that Jonah uses. I was I was like giving birth. I was in travail, and then he he says from the depths of the grave, and the the Hebrew word there is sheol, which is the place of the dead. And he says from sheol's womb, this is where I was in the womb of sheol. And so Jonah is encased in a womb, about to be born, and at the same time he's in a tomb about to be resurrected from birth to life, from death to life. And then we also see a theme of God's severe mercy and his gracious hope here. In verse 2, it says, you hurled me into the sea. And he's referring to God. But if you read in chapter 1, who hurled him into the sea? The sailors did. But he knew, even though physically the sailors did it, this was God's work. This was God's doing. And so he could actually see God's hand in something that happened to him physically by someone else. Jonah's attitude of, I would rather die uh, than, than follow through and go to, to Nineveh. He asked to be executed. There's this vivid description of being in the middle of an ocean during the storm. And it's um, uh, in, in verse uh Uh, three there where it says into the very hearts of the seas and the current swirled about me all your waves and breakers swept over me and I was in the ocean when I read that because I've been in the ocean when that has happened years ago several occasions but one that came to my mind was Angel my daughter and I were were scuba scuba diving and we were on the outside, the ocean side of a, a big reef wall. And we were supposed to go down the reef wall and curve, turn in where it went into shallow water and, and calmer water and be picked up by the, the boat. But we, one of the divers was having problems. So the master diver pointed and we all headed out to the deep ocean. Away from the, you don't come up by a reef. You're dead if you do that. You had to swim away from the reef. And so we swam as, about as far as we could. And we all came up and the waves were sweeping over us. We were in the middle of this ocean. The, the boat was out of sight. We didn't know where it was. Our master diver had something blew up like eight foot high little thing, like a flag that he could blow. And he's blowing this whistle. And the whole time I'm thinking, I sure hope that guy's looking for us on the boat. And the waves are coming over and splashing. And if we hadn't had our buoyancy devices on us, we would have sank. That's the only thing that was holding us up. And when that boat came, we found out even how bad it was. Because have you ever been in the water and you see the keel of a boat? And you're trying to get in the boat? And it was dangerous. And I grabbed Angel. And as soon as the boat came down, I threw her on. And then I was down under the boat looking at the keel. And then the young lady who almost went into the propeller, I grabbed her and helped her up. And I'm just saying, Lord, help me up. And that, and, but that's what, it, but, but I was fairly safe. I had a buoyancy device on me. I was floating. I was okay. But this swirling around you and it's all over you. Uh, and he says, there's a glimmer of hope. He says, and your waves, your waves, Because, God, you can control this. 
See, those were not just waves caused by the ocean currents and by the storm, but they're God's waves. So if God sent these waves, God can control these waves. And then in verses 4 through 6, we see God's severe mercy. He's at the point he has no physical options, no point of return. He says, I, I, I'm banished. I felt banished from God. If you're banished, it means you're, you're moved far away. Where is God? Where, where is he at this point in my life? The, the waters were like being buried alive, he said. They, the waters close over me. Life's over. Seaweed is wrapped around my head. That's kind of a funny thing, but it gives you the image of how they wrap people for the, their grave clothes. Just wrap them in, in burial clothes. And he said, that's my burial clothes, seaweed. And then in verse 4, the last part, there's a turning point there. And he says, but I will look again. I will look again. From running from God, I'm going to turn toward your temple. And that word, look again, could also be translated, I'm going to try again. Do you see yourself in this prayer? Haven't you been at that point where you're sinking? And you're like, I I just, I I don't know if I, I, I can make it, but I'll look again. I'll try again. It's all over, as far as I can tell. It's, it's ended. But I'll look to the temple. I'll look to the, the Lord. I'll try again. And at this point, God burst into Jonah's life. His ending life. His life is ending. This covenant language is there. He says, O oh Lord, my God. And that reminds me of Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, where he says, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Jonah says, okay, that's right. Oh, Lord, my God. And then he says, I remembered. And that's that covenant word that Matt used earlier. He said, and it doesn't mean I'm just going to remember, but it means I'm going to take what is in my mind and I'm going to put it in the forefront of my mind. And I'm going to try and keep it there. When I remember he's God is there in front of me and I'm going to keep him there in front of me. I'm going to try to keep him in front of me. I want to remember him as I walk through life. It's a covenant word. The temple is mentioned twice. It's a, it's a place of Jewish worship. In their, in their mind, it's, it's where God dwelt. And yet they wrote and said, but it's not really where he dwells. But it's, it's our symbol of his dwelling. And it's a special place. God dwells everywhere. But we look to the temple because in our minds, that's, that's where God is. Thanksgiving, sacrifices, vows, salvation, all these things are covenant words. And he says, and when my life was ebbing away, that kind of gives you the idea of the the ebb and flow of the ocean, but also as your life just ebbs away. When you're, when you're, have you ever been sick and you feel your life is, is ebbing away? You're like, if I get worse, I'm not going to get better. It feels like it's just ebbing away. It's, it's as close to death as you can be without dying. And he says, at that moment, God saved me. In a way, I wouldn't have chosen. I wouldn't have chosen to be saved by being swallowed by a fish. But in that moment, where I should have been digested, I was saved. And I recognize the Lord's salvation. You see, sometimes... It takes someone being right at the end of their rope, 
before they realize their desperate need for God. Why does it take so long for God to answer our prayers? Have you ever been at this, this point? It's like, God, I'm waiting. I'm waiting for you. Where are you? Where are you? It's as if God takes some kind of pleasure in waiting and making you suffer. Have you ever felt that way? But I was thinking, maybe it's not that God takes pleasure in that. Perhaps it's God knows he has to wait that long before it gets through my thick mind how much I need him. I have to be really at the end of my rope sometimes before I, it really dawns me. Oh, yes, I, I understand in my mind a little bit. And yeah, I really need you, Lord. And I'll sing the songs. But I have to be, get at, at my most desperate place sometimes before I realize my desperate need for God. He summarizes here in verse 8, a hopeless man who emerges in hope. And he reminds others, he's reminding himself, he's reminding others, don't go back to the old way. Don't go back to the Have you done that too? Have you promised and promised and promised and, and you're at the end of the rope and the Lord saves you some way, you get out of it, and two weeks later you're messing up. Same way again. And so this is a, a reminder, verse 8. Let me read it. It's a beautiful, this, I think this is my favorite verse in chapter 2. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with the song of, oh, that's now, now in verse 9. <laughs> uh, I, with the song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. Those who cling to worthless idols. That word cling means to guard, to keep. In other words, the, the idea is I, I have something here and I'm clinging to it. I'm guarding it, I'm protecting it, I'm going to keep this, this is close to me here. And he says, those who cling to worthless idols, and we say, oh, we don't, we don't worship idols. No, that word in some of your old translations says, lying vanities, all right? And that's what it really means. It means that it is just anything that is transitory, it's not real, it's, it's a lie. This is a lie, you're living a lie, you've heard that before. You're living a lie here. It's temporary happiness. Oh, yeah, you're happy right now, but you're worshiping something temporary here. This pleasure really is not going to be satisfactory, not in the long term. It's worthless. It's temporary. And so anything that we place and we guard and we keep and we say, this this is special to me, you focus on that and you are forfeiting God's grace, God's gift. We substitute temporary things for permanent peace. And we can't have both. Jesus taught us that over and over. You can't hang on to these worthless things and keep them and guard them and worship them. And at the same time, keep and guard and worship your relationship with God. What's the key word? I had a key word and my mother helped me with the key word. It's not in the, in the chapter. But she kept bugging me, what's your key word? What's your key word? I said, well, what's yours? And she gave me the key word, and I said, Mom, you're right. This is the key word. Surrender. That's the key word of this whole chapter. This is a man who finally said, I surrender. I, 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 I have no other options. I'm giving it up. I surrender. As I said, repentance isn't strong there. There's, there's an element of repentance and surrender, sure. 
Uh, there's, there's not really confession of sin, even though there's an element of that in surrender. But Jonah realized, I need God. I need God. Maybe you're like, I'm, this is my confession day. I don't know how to repent properly. Oh, I know it in my mind. And, and I, I've actually put it into practice. And I've even taught it. And I've said, you know, we need to be a people who repent continually every day. Yes, I agree. I, but, you know, I look at myself and I say, but do I, do I really repent? And, and confessing my sin. Yeah, I can tell you stuff. I've been confessing right here. Yeah, I confess my sin. I'm unworthy. Yeah, I know. But do I really understand that? But this is one thing I think I can really understand. I give up. I give up. God, I don't even know how to repent properly. I don't even know how to have faith properly. I don't know how to work properly. I don't know how to live properly. I don't know. How, and I'm learning. I'm growing. I'm trying. Yes. But I, I know how to surrender and just say, God, I got nothing. I surrender. I'm in an ocean. I'm about to sink. I surrender. So where's Jesus in all this? In this section, he's inside a fish. Three times it's mentioned. This will be the last time we'll, we'll see it in this story. Verse 17, chapter two, verse 17 of chapter 1, verse 1 of chapter 2, and verse 10 of chapter 2. And Jesus helps us out here. He connects the dots with us in chapters 12 and 16 of Matthew and in Luke chapter 11. And the obvious miracles, there were obvious miracles that Jesus was doing. They were being attributed to Satan. The people who were against Jesus said, hey, you know, your, your work is Satan's work. You're doing this by the power of Satan. You know, show us a miracle. Show us something we can really believe. And Jesus said this, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the uh, belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. At that point, Jesus is referring to his death, burial, and resurrection. This is the only minor, what we call a minor prophet, prophet that Jesus ever refers to. And refers to this minor prophet, uh, and he says, what, what happened to Jonah is like a shadow of the reality of what's going to happen to me. And the sign of Jonah being three days and three nights in the, in the tomb of a fish. I'm going to be in a tomb just like that. And he ties the greatest event of history, the resurrection, to this three days, three nights in the belly of a fish. The greatest event in Christ's personal history was the, was the resurrection. And then Paul ties that, that death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he ties us, Christians, into that. And when he does that, we are tied to Jonah in the belly of the well. Romans 6, 3 and 4. For all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, we were therefore buried with him. We, Jesus was buried, and we were buried with Jesus 
through baptism into this death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. I'm kind of hesitating to say this, but I'm going to say it. Yeah, well, it's using the word vomit, but the Bible used it. So, did you see that where he said, and the fish vomited him? Yeah, I'm not going to get graphic, okay? But can you imagine the condition Jonah was in? And it made me think, guys who just got baptized, people who are new creatures in Christ, you, you go into that water, and, and you're cleansed of your sins. And you come out a new life, but you're a mess. Still need to clean up. There's still growth. There's a new life. It's, it's like you got all that vomit on you still. It's sinful. You're, the sin is taken care of. It's really taken care of. But the way you live, that's, a, that's an ongoing thing that you have to go through. So we're joined to Jonah in our history. We're rebellious. We struggle with our obedience. As often when we come to this point of no return, we finally realize, I need God. We surrender and turn to him. And it's in this beautiful surrender here, if you've not surrendered in this way, where you come to God and say, I give up. I give up. I I cannot do it. So I'm coming to you and you said, be immersed. I, I, I'm connected with you in your burial, death, and resurrection. I'm going to rise to walk a new, I'm going to be a new creature, a new person in Christ. A couple of Wednesdays ago in uh, Lauren's class, he had a statement on, on the screen that I took a picture of because it was so good. And it said, in the Bible, passing through the water is consistently a symbol of leaving an old life for a new one, sometimes involving suffering. That's what happened to Jonah. That's what happens to us. That's what happens to us. And so the question we need to ask ourselves, am I ready to leave an old life for a new one? Have you gone through enough suffering in the belly of the well to just say, I surrender God, I'm turning to you. And so Jonah, he he ends his prayer. Salvation comes from the Lord. It could also be translated, salvation belongs to the Lord. He, it belongs to God and he gives it to you. And it comes from him, he gives it to you. And so we go over to Revelation chapter 10 and he says the same words. Salvation belongs, you've sang this, you, you sing this song. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Because it's through Christ that we have this salvation. And then he says, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Alan Wright Sermons podcast. We hope you'll join us next time. God bless you and have a wonderful week.